Open your Bibles to Acts 16. Our text this morning is Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. Uh, last Sunday, we heard Luke's account of Paul and Barnabas's decision to separate. Barnabas taking John Mark to Cyprus and Paul taking Silas to Syria and Cilicia. From this point forward, Luke will tell Paul's story, beginning this morning with the story of how Timothy became part of his ministry team. But before we hear the reading and the preaching of God's word, let's pray. Uh, our prayer for illumination was written by an anonymous Christian around the year 460 A.D. Let's pray. O God, who has taught us to keep all your heavenly commandments by loving you and our neighbor, Grant us the spirit of peace and grace that we may be both devoted to you with our whole heart and united to each other with a pure will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Acts 16 verses 1 through 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on from their on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all can come up and join me. Hey, yeah, I like it. Good to see y'all. Good to see you. Yeah, come on. Make room for each other. You can squeeze in. All right. I, I want you guys to use your imagination with me right now. Okay. So imagine that I am a farmer and I have a cart. I have a wagon full of food that I'm trying to get to the market. Now, here's where you can help me. Where should I put the horse to help with the cart? The, the horse goes in front of the cart. Or, or no, the horse, the horse goes behind the cart, right? No. Well, in, front. in the front. You, you sure? Yeah. You positive? The horse comes first. All right, I'll try it that way. Well, you. Oh yeah. Well, y'all obviously have the wisdom already that knows that keeping things in their proper order is pretty important. Getting things out of order, like you said, ouch. Sometimes it, it can really cause problems. And you know, we even have that saying that, that helps people understand when they've gotten things in the wrong order. We, we tell them, hey, you're putting the cart before the horse. Just to picture it for them, right? Well, God wants his people to keep two things in their proper order as well. Our salvation and our works, the good things that we do. 
And he even gave his people a picture in the Old Testament to help us remember. When, when God rescued his people from Egypt, did they have to do anything in order for God to rescue them? No, nothing. Uh, like Moses told Israel on the edge of the Red Sea when Pharaoh's army was coming to chase them, Moses said, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. He says, you didn't have to do anything. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will rescue you. But, but after, after God saved them from slavery in Egypt, do you remember what mountain God led his people to? Yes, Mount Sinai is what it was called. He, God led His people to Mount Sinai where God gave them His law, the Ten Commandments. His words that were teaching them about what they were supposed to do as His people. He, he taught them a new way to live with Him and with each other. But He did that after He had already saved them. Remember the order. God tells us that redemption comes before law. Salvation comes before works that we do. God saves us without us having to do anything because Jesus already did everything through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. We are forgiven and rescued because of him so that we only have to be silent and just receive Jesus. We don't have to be good first, but... Once God saves us from sin and death, He saves us to a new kind of life. A life of good works. We, we do them not so that God will save us. That's putting the cart before the horse. But we do them because God has already saved us. In that passage that I, I read just a minute ago, Paul wanted believers back then to know that the apostles and the elders, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they were saying the same thing. And it's what you and I have to remember today, too. God saves us without us having to do anything for Him. But after He saves us, He gives us good works to do for others. And because our God never puts the cart before the horse, because our God never switches the order on us. That's another reason why we call this good news. Do you believe it? All right, thanks guys. You can go back to your seats. Well, if you've not done so already, you can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. As Sam said, this is Luke's account of, of Timothy uh, joining Paul and Silas on the, uh, the second missionary uh, journey. And I want us to, to begin by, by noticing uh, that, uh, that this was a, an effective ministry. Look again at verse 5. In verse 5, we're told that through the, the ministry of Paul's team, him and, and Silas and now Timothy and, and others, through, through the ministry of this, of this ministry team, the church, we're told, was strengthened in the faith, and grew in numbers daily. 
So, so the members of the church were being built up in their faith. They were growing uh, in Christ. They were growing in grace. And the church was growing numerically. New disciples were being added to the church every day. And when this gives us a, a picture of the mission of the church. When we speak about making disciples, it is always this, this twofold vision that we have in mind. We, we want there to be uh, uh, growth in grace. We want those who are already part to be continuing to grow. The, the work of the church, the making of disciples, includes discipling those who are already members of the church. But it also includes reaching those who have not yet received and rested upon Jesus Christ and, and calling them into relationship, calling them to repentance and faith. And it's this twofold mission of the church that, that we seek to accomplish here at Trinity. This is, this is our vision for our own uh, ministry. We want to be a church where people are, are growing in the faith, and we want to be a church uh, where people are coming uh, to, to know Him uh, and to receive and rest upon Jesus Christ for their own salvation. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to look at how this mission, this twofold mission, was accomplished through Paul and his uh, partners. And there are three things in particular that I want us to, to notice. I, I want us to notice three things about the way Paul and his partners went about uh, accomplishing this twofold vision of, of making disciples and of uh, growing disciples in the Lord. And the first thing I want us to notice is simply that Paul had partners. Look again at verse 3. We're told in verse 3 that Paul wanted to take Timothy uh, with him on his uh, journey. Remember, Paul had been commissioned to, to revisit the churches that they had planted uh, in, on his first journey. He had chosen Silas to be his partner, but when he gets to uh, Derby and Lystra, he meets a, a young man named Timothy, a man who, who probably came to faith uh, on Paul's first missionary journey. We, we suspect that because Timothy is elsewhere referred to as Paul's son in the faith. And this man is, is well spoken of by the brothers. He, he, has, he has grown in his faith. He is a man who is, is living as a disciple of Christ ought to live. He's well spoken of by uh, the brothers. And, and Paul sees in him uh, a potential. He sees in him one who, who could be a benefit uh, um, in the, the, the work that he is doing. One who could be a, a true partner in ministry. And so he wants to take Timothy with him. And it's important for us to see that. It's important for that we see that Paul wanted partners. We, have, we, we might misunderstand and we might think that, that Paul objected to, to Mark coming with him because, because Paul thought he didn't need the help. But that's not the case at all. As we saw last Sunday, there were reasons why Paul did not want to take Mark. But, but having uh, said no to Mark, he didn't then go on his own. He, he chose Silas to be his partner. And here, when he meets Timothy, he, he wants to draw him into the team. And, and next Sunday, we'll, we'll look at Luke becoming part of the team. And so Paul is someone who is, who is always working with partners. He's, he's all, he always has a, a team around him. And that is significant, as, as gifted as Paul was. 
He understood that the health and growth of the church required more than him doing his thing. The health and the growth of the church required a a plurality of ministers. And and more than that, not only a, a plurality of ministers, but it required every member to do its part. You see, it's not just the members of Paul's team who need to be doing the work of ministry. But but Paul understood that that the members of the church to which they were ministering also needed to do their part. The the growth of the church depended on every member doing its part. We we see this in his letters. He he says it explicitly in his his letter to the Corinthians, but he he says it also in, in the first chapter of his letter to the Romans. Paul, speaking there of his desire to go to Rome, uh, speaks of how eager he is to go and to use his gifts there in Rome. He wants to preach the gospel that that he might reap a, a harvest there among them. But he immediately adds, and I want to be ministered to by you. He says, says, I understand that it's not going to be just us coming to give, but we are also going to receive. And that the church is going to grow up in the faith. The church is going to be strengthened uh, in the faith as every member does its part. And so here, in in Paul's desire to to take Timothy with him, we we see the importance of partnership. We we see uh, that that the, the growth of the church, the health of the church, is dependent not upon one man, because because no one man is 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 God Christ's only minister. But rather every member of Christ's body must do its part for the church to grow up in love. And this is something that we need to remember here at Trinity. We need to remember that we need a, a plurality of ministers. Obviously, I'm the one who, who gets to stand up here most often and, and preach the Word. Sam gets to, to preach the Word. But we are not the only ministers of the Gospel. And if we are the only ones ministering the Gospel, then the health of the church will be undermined. We, we need a plurality of ministers. And we have elders who are ordained to that, pack, uh, to that work. They are ministers of the Word. Uh, they are to come alongside you and to, to feed you with the Word. They don't, they don't preach from the pulpit, but they lead small groups and, and they lead, teach Sunday school classes. But it's not even just those formal ministries. They are speaking the truth in love into uh, the, the flock's life. But understand, it's not just elders who do that. All of you have the opportunity to do that. All of you have the opportunity to speak the truth in love into one another's lives. You have the opportunity to be ministers of the word. But the, but the truth is that, that not all of you are, are, are comfortable or are primarily gifted in, in that kind of word ministry. We can all confess Christ as the reason for hope. We can all speak truth to, to a, a friend in a, in a time of, of need. But some of you have other gifts. Other gifts that are not word-centered. You have gifts of administration, gifts of of mercy. You have the ability to take care of the the facilities. Aren't you glad that we have a building to meet in where the air conditioning works and the lights work and and where the chairs are are set up in a comfortable way? We can take those things for granted, but someone does that work. And it's not me. And I'm thankful. Because because there are people who are gifted to take care of the building. There are people who are gifted to take care of the the physical needs of the congregation. There are people who who come alongside those who are struggling to to pay their bills or to buy groceries or to get their medicine. And our deacons and and those who assist the deacons, they do that work beautifully. And it, it allows the ministry of the word to take place. 
But what you need to understand is that the health of the church is dependent upon there being a plurality of, of, of people using their gifts, using their gifts to, to build up and strengthen the church. Because the reality is that the church is not ministered to by any one person, no matter how gifted. The Apostle Paul by himself was not enough. Because we are all members of Christ's body. He is the only Savior. And we are ministers of Him to the church. But not only do we see this need for, for, for partnership and for a plurality of ministers, not only do we see that in, in Paul's decision to take Timothy, we also see the importance of, of mentoring those who would be ministers in the church. Yes, Timothy is going to be Paul's partner, but, but understand he's not exactly Paul's peer. As I said, he's, he's referred to as, as Paul's son in the faith. He, he is one who came to faith through Paul's ministry. He's, he's much younger than Paul. And here he is just beginning his ministry. He is, he's learning. And, Timothy, and Paul wants Timothy to learn on the job. And what I want you to understand is that that focus on mentoring the next generation of ministers is, is something that Paul considered vital to the health of the church. It's actually a job that he will later commend to Timothy. After Timothy has been trained, after Timothy has been mentored, Paul will say to him near the end of his life, now it's your turn, now you need to mentor the next generation. And he doesn't even just say that. He doesn't just commend him to, to minister the next generations, but he says, mentor that next generation in such a way that not only will they be prepared to do the work, but they will be prepared to mentor those who will come after them. And so what you see is that in Christ's church, we actually learn to love one another. We learn to, to, to serve one another, to, to shepherd one another, to feed one another, to speak the truth to one another. We learn that by doing under the shepherding leadership of someone who came before us. And so the ongoing health of the church is dependent upon an ongoing ministry of mentoring. We need to understand that because we need to be raising up the next generation to do the work of the church. And of course that has implications for you. If, if you're here this morning and, and you are thinking about ministry, you think that maybe you're called to ministry, maybe it's ordained ministry, Maybe it's lay ministry in the church. You, you think you're called to that. If, if that is your calling, you need to understand that you need to be mentored. You need to seek out a relationship like this with, with someone. I had that opportunity when I was coming out of seminary. When I was coming out of seminary, I can remember my dad telling me, don't worry too much about job description. Find a pastor that you can work under and you can learn from. So don't, don't worry about job description, but, but find a pastor. And, and by God's grace, I did. I found Bob Drake, the, the pastor of Covenant Reformed Church in Asheville, North Carolina. And I, and I could not have asked for a better mentor, a better man to, to sit under and to learn from. I was there for, for seven years, and he taught me what it means to be a pastor. And if you think that you're called to ministry, you need to seek out those kinds of relationships. You need to, to seek out someone who you can work alongside and work under for a season. You know, knowing your theology is important, but it's not enough. Seminary is, is good, but it's not sufficient. We need to learn how to be shepherds of God's word to the people whom God has entrusted to our care. We do that by, by working under someone uh, who has already walked the road ahead of us. And so the first thing that we see here is the, the importance of partnership but, but also the importance of, of mentoring so that, that, so that the partners can, can continue generation after generation after generation for the good of the church. But there's something else I want us to see here. 
Not only does, does Paul choose Timothy to accompany him, but he also has him circumcised. Luke says that he did this because of the Jews and the places where they would be ministering. They were going to be Jews. And, and Paul thought in order to, to limit offense, he will have Timothy uh, circumcised uh, before he goes and, and ministers in those places. And that's, that's sort of an explanation, but it doesn't really answer all our questions, does it? It strikes us as odd. It strikes us as more than odd. It strikes us as inconsistent for Paul to have Timothy circumcised before he can join his ministry team. I mean, after all, uh, hadn't Paul spent a great deal of energy in the previous chapter uh, arguing that circumcision was not necessary? Wasn't it at the, at the, the heart of his vision for the, for the church to argue that Gentiles can be saved as Gentiles? How is it then that, that Paul can here be uh, asking Timothy to get circumcised before he can join his ministry team? It's so strange that, that some people see this as, as Paul's failure. That this, this is a demonstration of Paul caving in to the pressure of the, the Judaizers. And while it's not uh, impossible that, that Paul failed, we, we know that Paul was human just like us. We know that he would have erred and, and sinned just like us. There's nothing in the text to suggest uh, that this was a failure. Other people go even farther and they say, this wasn't just a failure by Paul. This is, this is a complete fiction. There's no way that Paul did this. Luke must have made this up. Uh, th this cannot possibly be true. And of course, we're, we're not going to go there either. We believe that, that Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We believe these are the very words of God. We believe this is what actually happened. And so we need to try to understand. We can't just dismiss it as, as failure or as fiction. We have to understand why did Paul do this? Why did Paul have Timothy circumcised? And I think that we can begin to understand it when we see how Luke introduces us to Timothy. Who is he? He is a disciple who was the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. And that makes all the difference. In, in, under Jewish law, if you had a Jewish mother, you were a Jew. We, we sometimes hear people refer to Jewish Paul, Timothy as, as half-Jewish. There, there was no, no such conception in uh, the Jews' mind of the first century. Timothy was a Jew because his mother was a Jew, and that made all the difference. Think back to, to Paul refusing to have Titus circumcised. We, we read that account in, in his letter to the Galatians. Why, why did Paul refuse to have Titus circumcised? Paul refused to have Titus circumcised because he was a Gentile. And those who were demanding his circumcision were suggesting that a person had to be circumcised, had to come under the Jewish law, had to become a Jew in order to be saved. That's exactly the question that the Jewish council had uh, addressed, which we'll come to in just a moment. But Paul refused to have Titus circumcised because circumcising Titus would have, would have confused and compromised the gospel. It would have suggested that circumcision was necessary for a Gentile to be saved. And so in order to protect the clarity and the purity of the gospel, Paul adamantly refused to have Titus circumcised. And I would suggest to you that he is actually having Timothy circumcised for exactly the same reason. Right? Timothy, as I said, is a Jew. And so it would have been easy for the Jews to whom they were seeking to minister to misunderstand Timothy's uncircumcision. 
It would have been easy for them to interpret that as as Paul asserting not just that a Gentile didn't have to be circumcised, but that it was better if a person wasn't circumcised, that that circumcision was somehow bad, that, that being Jewish was problematic. And that's exactly what Paul doesn't want to say. When Paul uh, opposes circumcision for the Gentiles, he is not saying that that circumcision is a problem. He's not saying that being Jewish is a problem. But think about how he puts it in his letter to the Galatians. What does he say? He doesn't say it's it's better not to be Jewish. He says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. It's not that being uncircumcised is better. It's that circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't matter. It doesn't count for anything. A Jew can and should remain a Jew. That is his heritage. And a Gentile can and should remain a Gentile. Gentiles do not have to become Jews. Jews do not have to become Gentiles. Because the gospel is for Jews and Gentiles alike. The gospel is for all of humanity. Anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You do not have to become a Jew in order to qualify yourself. And nor do you have to remove the marks of your Judaism in order to qualify yourself. And so just as Paul refused to circumcise Titus in order to to protect the clarity and the, the purity of the gospel, he does exactly the same thing with Timothy. He has him circumcised in order to protect and to to clarify the, the truth of the gospel. Paul has Timothy circumcised in order to demonstrate that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision gives you any advantage before the Lord. That all that is required is that you believe in Him. Receive and rest upon the Lord and you will be saved regardless of your cultural heritage. That's what's going on here. And I think, again, that teaches us some very important lessons about how gospel ministry is to be done. How do we make disciples and and grow disciples in the Lord? Well, one of the things that we must do is we must keep ourselves from adding cultural accoutrements, cultural requirements to the gospel that we proclaim. We we can think about how this was done in the past. I've heard my dad say that when he was a kid, he was was often told that, that true Christians do not drink, smoke, or chew or go with girls who do. That was, that was the way that it was put for him. You know, th- those, were the, those were the cultural requirements. And of course, those weren't the only cultural requirements. You also weren't supposed to dance or, or play with cards, and you certainly weren't supposed to go to movies or, or listen to secular music. But these were the, the cultural requirements that, that defined a, a true Christian. Christians, if you were a woman, weren't supposed to wear pants, and if you were a guy, you weren't supposed to wear long hair. That's how you could identify a Christian. And and, and no one probably would have ever said, well, these things are necessary for salvation. They knew better than that. But at the same time, if you violated these these cultural norms, then your profession of faith was viewed with suspicion. It was your profession of faith, your your claim to be a follower of Christ was, was called into question. You can't really be serious about your faith. You can't really be earnest and and sincere. If you're not doing these things, or doing these things, that you're not supposed to do. But of course, Francis Schaeffer saw in his day 
how those very cultural requirements were actually turned on their head. He said at first he was impressed with these young Christians who, who would not be bound by these human laws, but then he, he began to realize that they weren't really concerned about the freedom of the gospel so much as they were concerned about just doing what they wanted to do. And so, so what, what happened is that in, in certain circles, it wasn't that you weren't supposed to have long, it wasn't that you were supposed to have short hair, it was that if you, if you had short hair, now you were the suspicious one. If you, if you didn't drink, or if you wouldn't listen to the music, or if you wouldn't watch the movies, now you were the suspicious one because you must not really understand grace. And so all of the sudden, culture, whether you were for it or whether you were against it, these became the markers of true followers of Christ. And the, the true ministry of the gospel was harmed by such lists. And, and it's easy for us to look back 50 years and, and see the, the damage that was done, but I, but I wonder if we do not have similar lists today. Are there cultural markers that we associate with being a Christian, so much so that, that we question the sincerity of someone who doesn't meet our cultural expectations? One of the big ones I, I hear a lot is, you know, can a Christian be a socialist? Kind of a hard question. But you realize that there are people who ask exactly the opposite question. Can a Christian be a capitalist? And those are cultural markers. And, and all of a sudden we're wrestling with, okay, wait a second. If, if that person believes that, can they really be a follower of Christ? If that person thinks the economy should be organized that way, can they really be a follower of Christ? And I think Paul might say your economic theory, whether you're for or against capitalism, doesn't count for anything. But what matters is faith expressing itself in love. And of course, how you view the economy is not only one example. We could, we could list off others. There are those who view those with education with suspicion. And there are those who view those without education with suspicion. There are those who, who, who view those who are, who are politically active with suspicion. And there are those who, who, who view those who, who sit on the sidelines of politics with suspicion. What if you're a news junkie? Or what if you're more like me and are generally oblivious to what's going on in the world? <laughs> Which one? Which one is more compatible with true Christian faith? You see, there's, there are all kinds of cultural markers that we are tempted to add to our definition of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And I think Paul is here demonstrating that we have to guard against that error. We cannot add cultural requirements to the gospel. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Let me, let me just be explicit. There are certain non-negotiables. <laughs> All right? There are certain non-negotiables that, that Christians must hold to. Uh, for the sake of accommodating our, our neighbors, we, we cannot approve of homosexuality or, or transgenderism. We, can, we cannot uh, be confused where the gospel speaks clearly. <laughs> All right? there, there are certain non-negotiables. We cannot approve of abortion or of, or of no-fault divorce because, because those are not gray areas. But there are cultural uh, accoutrements. There are, there are cultural requirements that we are tempted to add to our understanding of what a, what a disciple looks like that actually hinder 
our ability to proclaim the one true gospel. And so the, the second thing that I think we learn here is that we must be careful. We must, we must hold to, to Paul's uh, statement that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, neither this cultural manifestation nor that cultural manifestation counts for anything, but only faith expressing itself in love. And really that brings us to our third and final point. Because our third and final point is the importance of proclaiming faith expressing itself in love. You see, it's not enough just to guard against the pollution of the gospel. We actually have to proclaim the gospel clearly. And Luke tells us that's exactly what Paul was doing. It's, it's hard for us to see sometimes because of the way that he phrases it. But notice what he says. He says that they were bringing news from Jerusalem. They were bringing the news of the Jerusalem council. They were bringing the decision of the Jerusalem council to the churches that they were visiting. Now, we might read that and think, well, that just they, were, they were just bringing the news. They were bringing the happenings that were, were going on in Jerusalem. But that's not at all what Luke means. Remember, the decision of the Jerusalem Council was a decision about the very essence and heart of the gospel. Remember what the Jerusalem Council was for. The, the Jerusalem Council had been called and convened because there were some in the church who were teaching that a person had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And as we've seen over the course of the last several weeks, that means that they were teaching that a person had to establish their own righteousness through the law in order to receive the salvation purchased by Christ. And the council said no to that in the strongest possible terms. The council said, no, it is not necessary for a Gentile to be circumcised. It is not necessary for, for a person to establish their own righteousness through works of the law. Justification is by faith alone, apart from works of the law. That is the very heart and, and, and center of the gospel. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. Another has done for us what we could not do for ourselves, and only in him by faith can we be saved. If you are here this morning and you have never received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you need to understand that there is nothing that you must do to qualify yourself. All that you must do is believe. The gospel is for you, and it is for any and all who would call upon the name of the Lord. There's nothing you must do to qualify yourself. That's the gospel that the, the council was, was protecting. That's the gospel that Paul was, was taking with him as he visited these churches. The gospel of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. But you remember that that's not all the council said. Even as the, the council gave a hard no to the necessity of, of circumcision... The council also said that Gentiles would do well to avoid, remember the list? Food sacrificed to idols, blood, the meat of strangled animals, and, and sexual immorality. These were ways, as we've seen over the course of the last several weeks, these were ways for Gentiles to selflessly deny themselves for the sake of maintaining fellowship with their new Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what was the council saying? The council was saying exactly what Paul says, that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith expressing itself in love. Justification is by faith alone, apart from works. But your salvation is unto works, those good works that God has prepared in advance that you should do. 
You've been saved apart from anything that, that you have done, but only by what Christ has done for you. But you are now his workmanship, created by his power to do the good works that he has prepared for you. Works like denying the sinful passions of your flesh. That's the, the prohibition against sexual immorality. You have to deny the, the sinful passions of your flesh that, that harm your brothers and sisters, that vandalize God's shalom. And you have to deny yourself, even in those neutral cultural expressions that would offend your weaker brothers. That's all the, the, the talk about food laws. You say no to yourself in order to, to love well your weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. That was the decision of the council. That's the full-orbed gospel that Paul is preaching. Justification by faith alone, apart from works, but unto works. And so when we see this, when we see the gospel that they're proclaiming, we, we begin to see how it is that the church can grow up in the faith and increase in numbers. It grows as this gospel is proclaimed, not by one, but by many. And as this gospel is protected from, from the cultural pollution of the doctrines of men. You see, when we, when we as a body, every member doing its part, proclaim the one true gospel, the church grows. The church grows up in the faith. And the church grows numerically as new people are, are drawn to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly that's exactly what we want to be. We want to be a church. We want to be a church where there's not one minister, but where we are a body of ministers. We are a body of, of gifted members, each member doing his part, each member doing her part, so that together the, the gospel is proclaimed without the pollution of, 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 of cultural expectations, but that the gospel is proclaimed in all its full glory. A call, a, a proclamation of salvation apart from works, under works, to the praise of his glorious grace. And when we do this ministry this way, we know that just as, Paul, just as God worked through Paul, he will work through us to build his church according to his promise. And because God works in this way, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let's believe it together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for uh, the wonder of this gospel. We thank you, Father, that we thank you, Father, that we are saved apart from works. But Father, that we are saved unto works. That we are saved into the good life of, of obedience. That we are saved into the, uh, the, the good life of, of walking in the, the way of your wisdom and in your word. And Father God, may we not only live this faith out, but may we proclaim it clearly in our community so that many are brought to faith and that those who believe are built up in that faith so that they more and more reflect the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.